welcome to the Richard Hunter interview. As ever, this is the place where I'll be discussing matters of interest with a whole range of investment experts. Having recently spoken with Nick Train, I'm delighted to say that in this episode, we complete the Linsell Train set, speaking with Michael Linsell, Portfolio Manager of the Linsell Train Global Equity Fund. Michael co-founded Linsell Train in 2000. He's the Portfolio Manager for Japanese Equity Portfolios and jointly manages global portfolios. Michael has over 30 years experience in investment management, and before founding Linsell Train, he spent seven years at GT Management, first as Chief Investment Officer in their Tokyo office, then in London with responsibility for all GT's global and international funds. Following the acquisition of GT by Invesco in 1998, he was appointed head of the combined global product team. His previous experience includes working at Mercury Asset Management, where he was director and head of Japanese fund management in London, at Scimitar Asset Management in Hong Kong, where he ran Pacific and Japanese mandates, and at Lazard Brothers as an investment manager. Michael has a BSc honours degree in zoology from Bristol University. So first and foremost, a very warm welcome to you, Michael, and thank you for sparing us some of your time. Well, thank you, Richard, and that was very comprehensive bio. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we, uh, we did 20, 25 years in no time at all there. So in terms of the um, Global Equity Fund, could you first... Perhaps, Michael, talk to us about what you see as the uh, objectives and indeed the investment style of the fund. What we're trying to do over the long term is to firstly protect, um, but secondary, grow um, the real after-tax purchasing power of fund holders' assets over the long term. Um, and we do that by investing in a, a narrow range of what we consider to be exceptional global businesses. Um, and we're measured um, in that task by reference to um, an index, uh, the MSCI World Index. Um, now, of course, that has many more, many more businesses in it, 1,600 or 1,700 or so. So um, we're never going to perform in line with that index because we've only got 22 or 25 stocks in our portfolio. But it is a relevant measure of capital markets um, over the long term, and if we're doing our job properly and allocating capital successfully, we ought to do better than that index over the time, which I'm happy to say that we've been able to do since the fund began. So what we're asking ourselves of any company that we consider um, is, uh, can it, um, over a 20-year period, deliver returns to us in a way that we can understand and um, and to achieve those objectives of delivering returns in real terms. And frankly, we think there are very few companies that can meet um, that, that criteria. And so we're drawn towards concentration in our portfolios. Um, you know, we have 25 stocks uh, and we like concentration um, from the perspective of controlling risk. And that may sound a bit paradoxical, but um, we think about risk as the risk of losing any capital that we commit to any investment. And from that very narrow definition of risk, um, focusing on the best businesses only, rather than over-diversifying into a range of lesser businesses, we think is absolutely the, the best way forward. 
Now, the other um, characteristic, if you like, or, or, or feature, apart from concentration, that is, of our portfolios that you should know about, is that um, we are tenacious about holding on to the companies that we invest in, and we very rarely trade. To put this into perspective, you know, we've uh, run this fund for uh, almost 10 years, and um, there's probably been 10 changes in the portfolio over that period of time. So one a year. It probably means a, a portfolio turnover of, you know, between three and five percent per annum, perhaps nearer three. And that is very low um, for the industry. And um, and that's deliberate because what we want to do is we want to give our companies the chance to compound those cash flows that we think that they can generate um, and benefit from that compounding effect over long periods of time. Um, Einstein once said that uh, the eighth wonder of the world is the, is the power of compounding, and we want to benefit from that on behalf of our investors. Okay, so so with that in mind, and obviously bearing in mind it's it's a global fund. How, how does the um, the geographic allocation break down, and and also the the sector allocation in the fund? We we don't look at it from a geographic perspective. I'll, I'll answer the question, but the the way I want to illustrate it is I, I want to talk about um, four distinct components of the portfolio as it stands today. Um, you know, we have, and, and that particularly comes from the from the perspective that um, we are um, building the portfolio from the bottom up. So we're not trying to make grand expositions about what's going to happen to economies or markets worldwide or currencies. We're just looking at the companies that we can identify, trying to pick those best companies and form a portfolio around them. And... Um, Today, we have about just over 50% of the portfolio in either technology companies, pure technology companies, um, or companies that are exploiting technology to make their businesses better, to use new distribution routes to get their products out to people, to improve the utility of their products, all through the use of technology. Um, and if you um, if you look at the balance between those two components in the tech part, we have less in pure technology companies, probably about 15% of the portfolio. Um, our biggest holding in that arena is, is PayPal, which many of you all know if you're paying for things on the internet. Um, and, and within the tech exploiters, to, to give you an illustration of what I mean there, um, which is probably numbers about nine companies. We have a, a company, say, like Disney, um, which you may well know over the course of the last year and a half has completely changed its distribution uh, 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 policy away from using cable channels and broadcast and cinemas to distribute their content, their films, their video shows out to people. Instead, they set up streaming channels. So they now have three streaming channels, um, ESPN+, Plus, Disney+, Plus, and Star. And over the space of the last year and a half, have made a huge uh, attempt to, to build a subscriber base there in the same way as Netflix has for, for a longer period of time. So they're using 
the benefits of technology to forge a new business, to forge new distribution, to make their businesses better over the long term. Another uh, company um, that that is using technology for its benefits is um, is Nintendo, um, a Japanese company. Actually, the 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 oldest video game company out there, been doing video games for 40 years or so. And what's really valuable about the company are its um, its 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 ownership of its franchises and content. Any Nintendo fan will have come across Mario, will have come across Pokemon and Zelda. And actually, these characters are 30 or 40 years old. So actually, there's many generations of people who have come across these, these content. And what, what uh, Nintendo has been doing over the years is using advances in technology to create hardware um, to distribute those that content to an ever-larger audience. Um, and it's doing exactly the same today as it might have done 30 years ago. So that's that's the major part of the portfolio, just over 50%. We have about 17% of the portfolio in um, what we call companies that are, are targeting a higher percentage of premium or luxury sales. So it ranges from our holding in Prada, which is entirely a luxury company, um, to three other companies that have a growing proportion of their sales that derive from rare and luxury um, sales. So, so it's uh, Brown Foreman, which is the uh, owner of Jack Daniels, um, a, a, a bourbon whiskey. Desedo, which is a uh, Japanese cosmetics company that is increasingly premiumizing its portfolio and its sales to both domestic consumers in Japan and and uh, in China, particularly, and Diageo, which um, I know that Nick spoke about um, when he did his uh, his podcast recently. And uh, you know, I think today, if you include in Diageo the the sales it implicitly derives from its 35% holding in Moet Hennessy, Diageo's premium sales are probably about 35% of its business and growing. And that's where the growth is. That's where the margins are, are, are being derived from. Bear with me. Uh, 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 the, 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 last two, uh, the last two buckets are, um, or the, the, uh, the, I should say, the last bucket is, um, is, is consumer franchises. We, we own about 30% of the portfolio in you know, some beloved consumer franchises that have been out there for long periods of time with brands that you well know um, selling products to global consumers um, as far wide as the emerging market. So we have positions in companies like Unilever, Heineken, Mondelez that bought the Cadbury's business, if you remember, um, Pepsi, and, and a Japanese company called Cow Corporation, which is, if you like, is the Procter & Gamble of Japan um, and and uh, and dominates consumer uh, and personal care products for the Japanese market. Um, and yeah, so that is the that is that is the current makeup today. Now, geographically, what I think is really important is where the sales of the companies in aggregate, these companies in aggregate, are coming from. Not where they're listed. I mean, it doesn't much matter that Nintendo is listed in Japan or or in the U.S. As far as we're concerned, um, and if you look at that, um, we we derive 
our companies in aggregate derive approximately 35% of their sales from Europe, um, including the UK, about 35% from the USA, uh, biggest market in the world, developed market in the world, 10% from Japan, and the other 20% from a wide variety of emerging markets. Now, what's interesting about that 20% is that we actually don't invest directly in any emerging market. But because our companies like Unilever, Diageo, have big sales in those those jurisdictions, um, if you look through our, our positionings, you can see that we actually derive a lot of value from those sales in emerging markets, that we don't actually have to take the risk of investing directly in them. There's one other point I just want to mention, which is a, a feature, if you like, that runs across our portfolio, is that we as investors, given our long-term time horizon, place more emphasis than I think than others on the heritage and longevity of existence of our businesses. I think the average age of our companies is 124 years. And if you quickly do the math, you can work out that that means that the average company we own has, a, has survived at least one world war, probably two, lots of recessions, depressions, and economic upheavals. And still today, those companies are delivering returns to invest in the way we can understand. And to us, that says a lot, especially when we're asking ourselves the question, can they do it for another 20 years? So we have a bias towards heritage. And companies that are new, like tech companies generally are, you know, have a higher hurdle to get into to get into the portfolio, which is perhaps why we have less in those pure tech companies than perhaps other other managers. That's a very long answer. <laughs> no, no, that's that's perfect, and it, and it's clear from the answer that obviously uh, at any given time there are investment themes and there are indeed um, secular trends. So I think part of what you're saying is that um, you know obviously technology is an enabler, uh, and there's an ongoing debate about whether companies are pure tech or actually they're benefiting from tech. Um, so some of the store that you're setting by the companies you're investing is the fact that um, regardless of how quickly technology might have moved on in the last decade or two decades, uh, these companies have nonetheless uh, been through some fairly tough times and presumably you're keeping a fairly close eye on them that they continue to innovate and, for want of a better phrase, keep up with the times. That, that's right. I mean, you know, uh, you know, if you think about our uh, approach, um, you know, what we've got to ensure on an ongoing basis is the business models of the companies that we invest in, uh, you know, are as, as attractive as when we first invested. You know, the barriers to entry, the returns on capital these companies achieve, we want to make sure that they're sustained. Um, technology it can be a disruptor. And we've got to make sure that technology is not a disruptor to our companies. It is, it is an enabler. It, it gives our companies more opportunity to, to, to build up their barriers to entry and their market positions. You mentioned there, of course, that you do co-manage this fund uh, with, with Nick Train um, most famously. So perhaps it's of little surprise that there are some uh, stock similarities with Finsbury growth and income, for example. Um, but but what is the overlap between the strategies under the Lidsville Train umbrella? And, and do you consider uh, such a high correlation a risk for the strategies at all? 
I don't think so. Given our, 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 our the way we're wedded to concentration, you know, we believe that concentrating our portfolios, that the monies we invest on behalf of all our clients in our strategies to the best companies, we definitely think that's the the route forward. There is some overlap here. Uh, you know, um, uh, in the global portfolio of twenty five stocks, there's there's five Japanese companies. Um, those five Japanese companies will all be held in in the Japanese portfolio and others. Um, the seven uh, US and UK companies, the the Finsbury Growth and Income Trust does actually invest outside the UK to a limited extent, and 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 the the seven companies that that overlap from that perspective, um, and all are held in Finsbury Growth and Income. So, but then there's you know ten com- there's ten or thirteen companies or so that. That, that aren't, uh, that are completely unique to this fund. Um, but uh, no, if, we've, if we think we've got a great business in the UK, you know, we're going to consider it for, for the global fund. But, but, but the global fund does have a bigger choice because we've got all the American market to consider. We've got a, you know, other markets around the world as well. So, so um, yes, when, you know, w- when I think about where I'm investing my money, you know, uh, a good chunk of it goes in the, into the global fund because that gives us more choice than perhaps we'd have in Japan or indeed in, in the UK. Now, obviously, we've had a, an extraordinary year, um, almost to the date since the pandemic really kept kicking and we, we saw the subsequent effect on markets. So how have you found that the fund um, has been holding up during this quite extraordinary time? Well, um, if you go back to this time last year, uh, the fund was holding up pretty well, um, outperforming the index, very resilient in a in a down market. Um, but as the year um, progressed, um, we began to uh, 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 underperform against um, our benchmark, um, and and um, you know there are a number of of reasons for that, which I suppose have become more acute in in the first. Uh, 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 two months of this year. Um, well, firstly, you've had a situation of slowly rising bond yields, which um, uh, has accelerated at the beginning of this year. Um, and rightly or wrongly, some of our consumer franchises uh, are seen to as a proxy for uh, changes in global bond prices. And they've um, underperformed at a time when global bond deals have risen. Um, I, I think that that can happen in the short term, but I have to say that if rising global bond deals, uh, if it leads to inflation, some some of these consumer franchises have a great history of being able to price their products and maintain their margins in inflationary times. So you know their, their time will come again, I believe. Um, the other, um, uh, you know. Thing that undermined our performance, I suppose, later last year was that, um, as I said, we don't have a huge position in pure tech, um, 15% or so of the fund. Those companies did very well for us, PayPal, eBay, and Intuit. Um, but uh, we didn't own, you know, some of the big companies, big tech companies that most people are familiar with, Apple, Google, Facebook, Tesla, and others. And that's where a lot of the performance came in the second part of last year. And I suppose what rather frustrated us is that until recently, um, some of our uh, 
tech exploiters didn't keep up with that 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 performance. Um, so, and for, for for good reasons. I mean, Disney, you know, in the first half of last year was pretty awful. I mean, after all, its uh, theme parks were closed, its cinemas, you, you know, couldn't distribute its films. Um, um, WWE, which is World Wrestling Entertainment, we invest in them. They couldn't put on any live events. Um, Relics, which is a science, which is a scientific publisher, also has a uh, an exhibition business for uh, for, for businesses, um, and they couldn't put any live exhibitions on, so that business went down seventy percent latter half of last year. So some, for some very good reasons, these these businesses had had some difficulty. Things are now changing because we've got the expectation of of, of the pandemic moving behind us and. Uh, and those prices are, in some cases, beginning to perform. But last year, they lagged behind. And I suppose the final reason, which I think is more coming more into play this year, is that, you know, given our perspective, our focus on the businesses that I described earlier, we don't own um, commodity-based extractive industries, industrial capital-intensive companies. Those companies, in, in a recovery tend to perform very well at an early stage. That's exactly what's happening now. But that, you know, we expect will peter out. The recovery broadens. We expect our companies to be able to benefit on a wider perspective and and and, and catch up again. Just one final question, Michael, uh, following on from, from what you were just saying about some of the difficulties that uh, a couple of the holdings might have faced. Was, was the scale of the uh, share price declines last year enough to tempt you in uh, to perhaps topping up some of your holdings, notwithstanding that uh, it's a very, very low turnover, as, as uh, you earlier explained, or were you quite content to, to ride the storm out? Well, if you look at our you know, the, the, the constituents of the portfolio over the course of last year, really very little changed. Um, there were two tiny holdings that we sold right at the beginning of the year. But they only amounted to less than, you know, 0.3% of the fund. So essentially, the portfolio remained the same right the way through the year. But, you know, the global fund is an open-ended fund. We get inflows and outflows periodically. And when we do get flows, um, and when we do and dividends from our companies, we're looking to allocate the, 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 those funds to, to, the, to the companies that look best value to us at that particular time. And there were certainly opportunities last year, given those two factors, where we added uh, and took advantage of price weeks. Um, but there was nothing, uh, nothing big going on. There was, you know, our, our portfolio remained the same and still remains the same uh, as we speak so far this year. Marvellous. Well, unfortunately, um, time is uh, against us. So I must say thank you very much again, Michael, uh, for those valuable insights. It's been an f- absolutely fascinating chat. That, of course, uh, is Michael Linsall talking about the Linsall Train Global Equity Fund. Uh, and thank you for listening. Please feel free to like and subscribe. And, of course, you can find much more, by the way, of investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk. I'll be back next Tuesday with another Richard Hunter interview. Bye for now.